0: Hi, I'm Lina Sergiatar and welcome to Belongings, a podcast where we talk about home and have conversations about the places that create, shape, and sometimes break us. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Belongings. I know you're going to love this conversation with my friend Laith Nakhli, aka Uncle Nassim from the hit TV show Rami. Laith is an actor, writer, and champion of breaking stereotypes. He and I discussed finding home in new places and how to fit in while still standing out. I'm so excited for you to hear our conversation. He's brilliant, insightful, and of course very funny. Let's tune in. Leith, welcome to Belongings.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: I'm so excited to have you today on the podcast. I want to read a short bio of your work, which is very impressive. Leith Naqli is a Syrian-British actor who has been in many roles, including 12 Strong, The Wall, The Visitor, and most recently as Sheikh Abdullah in the 2022 series, Miss Marvel. Before his acting days, Leith was a competitive bodybuilder, winning the title of Mr. Syria before retiring from the sport. You probably know him as Uncle Nassim, the kind of uncle you do not want to bring to Thanksgiving dinner, but have to, in the award-winning and acclaimed Hulu series, Rami. Welcome, Leif.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So my first question is about the theme of this podcast, and I'd like Mm -hmm. to ask you, how do you define belonging?
1: I feel belonging is where you feel you've made home, and it's a very complicated question because no matter what, like I was in Syria, you know, and I didn't feel I belonged, even though... I love Syria. I grew up in England. I was born in England and grew up in England. I'm 10 years old, moved to Syria. I never really fully felt that I belonged in Syria. And then I come to America and I, even though it's my home and I love it more than anything, I still sometimes feel like I don't belong. So it's a very complicated and loaded question that there's no really... I feel if an immigrant say, I belong here, I belong there, I think they're missing something because it's almost like a lifetime pursuit of trying to find where do you belong, where do you fit? Because the moment you feel like you belong and you fit, something will happen that just reminds you that, you know what, you're just an immigrant, you know, know your place. It's tricky. So I don't really know how to fully answer it the way people expect me to answer it. Does that make any sense?
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Is it because of that immigrant mentality of having it be in different places and different times or certain events that shift your perspective? Or is it something more personal?
1: I think it's a mix of everything. It's a mix of everything. I mean, and everything in life is personal. I mean, the whole notion of we take things personally, don't take things personally. Every decision I've made in my life is because I took something else personally and the decision grew out of it. I took the decision personally to become an artist, to become an actor, and I was very committed because of it. When somebody offends me, I take it personally and then I react accordingly. So everything we take in life is personal. So that whole notion, I'm it's one of my pet thieves that don't take it personally, don't take it personally. You know, everyone takes everything personally. They just don't admit it and they don't say it. So yeah, I think a mix of everything.
0: Yeah, I think when looking at the trajectory of your work, you can see actually a lot of that kind of almost like how you react to certain situations, especially in the stereotypes of Arab and Muslim characters Mm. in the media. And we're going to get more into that and Mm -hmm. see how these kinds of reactions actually end up becoming really powerful parts of your work.
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: So my second question is what we needed the pen and paper for or pencil for, which is the thing that I ask every guest to draw a map of home. I'm an architect by training. So usually what I think about is a floor plan, but I've had guests draw all different kinds of things and home is actually whatever you define it to be. Mm -hmm. It could be a -hmm. past home that you remember. It could be where you live right now. It could also be something you imagine for the future and it could take any shape. Can you tell us a little bit about what you drew?
1: Well, that's the Empire State Building, which has always been my dream to see it since I was eight years old, and now I live right across the street from it. And this is my idea of the Amurian Mosque, because whenever I'm in old Damascus, I feel like I have a special connection to it, to the history. It was the first place we moved to when I left England at 10, and I was very close to my grandmother. We stayed in my grandmother's house, and I remember all the people, and the good outweighed the bad. In those two years there. So but it was so it takes me back and like if I were to go back to Syria, I would get a house in the old city and live in the old city. It's like, you know, people here they go buy a house in the country, i buy a house in the old city and just live live there, you know, with it's almost like I feel like the natives, you know.
0: So the two years you talked about, those were when you lived with your grandmother?
1: Yeah, we all live with my grandmother. My dad, and, you know, was just trying to get settled and find his footing. So we stayed at my grandmother's and then we moved, I think, a couple of years later.
0: So I have a very similar story in that my parents <clears throat> came to the United States after they graduated from university in Syria. And I was born in Brooklyn, but oh, wow. we moved around a lot. And when I was 12 years old, my parents moved us back to Syria, to Aleppo. So I moved from the U.S. to Aleppo. And I went a year early because I was the oldest. And I lived with my grandmother and then my parents, when my parents and my brothers came, we also lived with my grandmother until we moved. And I had that whole transition from regular American school, like a small private Mm. Catholic school in a tiny town in upstate New York to Halab and seventh grade, full on the military clothes and the nationalism classes, all of that straight into that. So did you have that similar experience?
1: Well, mine was, um yeah, very similar, but a little different too, because I, I'm assuming you spoke Arabic, your parents told you Arabic when you were here, no?
0: I mean, I spoke only like household Arabic, it's not that
1: useful <laughs> uh, to go straight even, in. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even speak that, I knew Mama Baba, that's it, and so, and no schools would accept me, all the government schools didn't accept me, and there was one school in Baptuma in the Christian district called Asiya, and they they were the only ones that accepted me. And I was there for a couple of years. I learned how to speak somewhat of Arabic. It was fun and traumatizing at the same time. And then after that, I went to, I think I'd studied a summer. And the summers that put me in this like really strict, I mean, it was so strict, like Islamic school to learn Arabic so I could learn in the summer. And then I joined regular high school. By the time I was in my seventh grade, I still had a slight accent. There's certain sounds I couldn't say. I was bullied a lot. Until I was not anymore, because I ended up becoming a tough kid. And uh, yeah, the komia, the everything, and, you know, and that ridiculous part of <laughs> childhood. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy.
0: Do you think the education system of memorization helped you in your acting career?
1: I don't know, because I don't consider, like, memorizing the most important component of acting. It's Memorizing is either easy or hard, but it doesn't mean that somebody can memorize easy a good actor so that's a skill that I developed separately fortunately I am good with memorizing so it makes my job easier but yeah you know like in school I excelled in four subjects and everything else I barely passed like I was a good math physics chemistry and English I was just like without even studying I never studied I would just read I would read math and excel terrible in everything else I mean even like the university, I studied a couple of years at the university when we have the, I can't remember what it was called, but comia where it ha- all has to do with, you know, politics and stuff. And, and you have to pass it. It's amazing. You could you could fail two classes of math, but you can't fail that class. It's really important to not fail it. Yeah. But yeah. I would always fudge it. I remember they were, <laughs> <it's> so funny. <laughs> I remember they would have this one thing, they'll give you like a question and then you have to literally like recreate and rewrite. Like you have to memorize it one of the president's speeches and I would just create a known speech. I was a good writer. I would write an incredible speech. And I would pass. I would get it would sound like it's very presidential. Oh my God. And I, I would pass I wanna I would, read one of those. I don't even remember like it was like, you know, yeah, it was crazy. It's crazy system.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm asking because that was the part for me that was the most traumatizing. It was so hard to memorize. And I think even my memory right now is like not so strong, probably because I resented that mm, part so much. Yeah. And I, it was very hard. To do that, even through university years, it was really hard to memorize everything as is. And so that's when I was reading about your background. Mm. I was wondering if that actually served you, but it seems like it didn't. Yeah, but actually, maybe yeah. what about the accent piece? Because for me, I still have an accent. I was never able to say I totally do not have an accent. I was never yeah. treated as if I didn't have an accent.
1: So I moved to Syria. I was 100% Brit. I was a British kid. And I was really upset for leaving England. You know, as much as I love Syria, I was upset because that was my home. And uh, I remember my dad wanted us to speak English at home so we can hold on to it. At home, we were only allowed to speak English. And I was so angry that I told him, I said, I will never speak English at home again. I never did, my sisters did. My sisters, their English was always perfect and I never did and I'm like, screw this, I'm not gonna do that. And at the same time, with the Arabic, I'm learning Arabic, it was very difficult too because I didn't think I would ever get it right because there's certain sounds that are very difficult. So that's, I would be made fun of a lot. So it was, it was tricky. I was always good in English, better than the average person. So I'd always excelled in class and all that. And I came here to America, it was very embarrassing because, you know, I spoke English, but my English was, I don't even know what my accent was, but um, it was poor and I used my British passport. It was embarrassing, like I'm British, but I can't speak properly you know but it came back right away and i have an ear like i adapt like if i'm living in brooklyn and bay ridge i sound like them the gift
0: of fitting in
1: you know a lot of it is based on necessity you know when you don't have a choice there are times in one's life you know where you have to compromise like i would never do what i did back in the 90s i changed my name because i didn't want to be associated with being arab because Arabs were viewed it in a certain way but now i will not do that no matter what i will not compromise who i am i will just like keep on fighting and I'll deal with the situation instead of run away from it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's such an important point. The idea of choice now, when we talk about the concept of refugees and people who had to leave home without Mm -hmm. having a choice And uh, I see that even with the kids that we have in the Kerim House, I see them as they grow through their teenage years and are becoming young adults. I'm meeting some of our previous students who have shifted their names to be able to fit in in a certain way. And I can see those kinds of mirroring of the struggles that I felt when I was younger too, and that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Obviously, when you're a refugee, all these struggles are heightened because they went through so much more and so much of it was not their choice. And it is like a survival mechanism. Mm
1: -hmm. I agree.
0: We're going to get a little bit back into your life journey. And I do want to talk a little bit more about the Empire State Building coming up. Sure. But uh, first, I want to talk to you about Rami. I mean, I got to know your work through Rami. And the show is so groundbreaking in the way that it shifts cultural norms and stereotypes about mm. being Muslim and Arab in America. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable, whether you're Arab or Muslim or not. Mm. And it's also hilarious. So mm. I think it's very brilliant. I wanted to ask you, how did you get involved with the project? With Rami, and how did you develop the character of Uncle Nassim? Mm.
1: I've known Rami since he was like 17 or 18, and we had a sketch comedy group together called Sketchy Arabs. And uh, we just write sketches and go do them sometimes like five people, and we just do these sketches. And then he went off and started his career. We were always in touch. I was always there for him. And, you know, when he was working on the show, he was writing it. I auditioned initially. I auditioned, it wasn't like he gave me the part, I had to earn it. I auditioned initially for his father, and uh, I got, I had tested I went in and tested afterwards. So I got so close and I didn't get it. I was so upset. I'm like, oh my God, I'm never going to get any. Cause you know, up until then, like it was only a year before that, where I made a decision or two years before that, that that's it. I'm not going to do certain roles ever again. So I'm like, ah, oh, nothing like this is going to come my way again. I was really upset. And, and then he just like, I think he offered me like, Hey, this was for the pilot. If you want, I can give you this part. Like, you know, I'm like, yeah, but that guy's not coming back. That guy's not recurring. So no, I'll, it's okay. I'll wait. And then the show got picked up and he told me, I wrote this part. I wrote it with you in mind, but you know, I still have to go through this process. So I, I read it and I love it. I'm like, holy crap. They're going to say this on TV. i <laughs> character's going to say this on TV and um, audition. I remember actually, this is how great Rami is because he came the night before my audition because it's not just his decision it's like a collective decision you can't just say i want him and everyone approves so but he came to my house we read and worked on it he wanted to just to to make sure that i without shadow of a doubt that i am that guy and it was funny because he was in my house we were playing and then he said can i record this and he put his camera on a little tiny tripod on the table and we started improvising for like half an hour and he was recording and then he was texting on his phone and Samad and that. And, you know, I went in and I tested and I got the part. And then the story later on is that he was texting like Hulu from my house and he sent them the video and they said, OK, yeah, we want him.
0: Do you remember what you were all like improvising about? What part?
1: Well, I don't know. We were just like talking, whatever you we talking. I don't even remember. We just kept on going and going and going and just. He says, what do you feel like, what are you going to wear? And I wore, I found the tackiest thing that I had. I put it on and I, you know, and I slicked my hair back and I just did my standard, like Middle Eastern accent then. But then I developed it later for the show differently. But um, yeah, that was what happened. It was crazy. And then the name I think was like, Uncle Khaled, and I'm like, ah, sound, I didn't want that. I'm like, you know, and he didn't like it either. So I said, can we change it? I'm like, yes. He said, pick a name. And I, you know, my best childhood friend in Syria, Nassim Awad, anytime I get an opportunity to use his name, I use it. So I said, how about Nassim? He's like, Nassim it is. And that was it. That's it.
0: And Nassim is such a great name because it feels like so soft and kind and opposite <laughs> of all the characters of Uncle Nassim. Yeah, yeah. Now you've done three seasons as Uncle Nassim, Mm -hmm. and he's gone through an evolution. We don't want Mm -hmm. to put any spoilers Mm -hmm. for anybody who hasn't watched the show. Actually, if you're listening to this and you haven't watched Rami, you have to watch Rami immediately. Um, Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask you, what have you learned from the character, and what has surprised you about the success of Rami?
1: I've learned that we all have flaws, and we have to just embrace them. I mean, whether we know we have them or not, Like I think Uncle Nassim just embraces himself, and I don't necessarily agree with all his views It's not all of them, but I understand him and I relate to him because I relate to everything that he struggles with in a different way. Why the show found success, I think it was just, you know, the world is ready now for shows like Rami. And I think Rami opened the door for a lot of other things. There was even a mention in an article that Miss Marvel probably wouldn't have happened if it weren't for Rami, who started opening the doors. And I think what makes it so smart is that Rami does it in a way where he can, no matter where you're from, what your background is, your race, you can relate to the show. You can relate to all the circumstances in the show. You can relate to the people in the show. And at the same time, you can learn a little bit more about the culture. It's not a Muslim show, even though people call it the Muslim show, which is fine, but because it's not teaching about Islam, it's teaching about his relationship to Islam and Islam from his, you know. So people relate to that and uh, they relate to it no matter what your religion is, no matter what your race is. I went to an event yesterday and most of the people there, even the non-Arabs have seen the show and they relate to it. And And I'm surprised that like wherever I go, like I see even more non-Arabs come up to me than Arabs do. Because yeah. a lot of Arabs are not ready to see it because in general, as human beings, we're not ready to see our flaws. We're not ready to see anything that we can relate to because we just have this image of perfection. Nobody is. Human beings are not perfect. So.
0: I agree. I think also for me, one of the, brilliant parts of Rami. And the difficult parts of Rami is that, you know, we've seen things before that try to push against the stereotypes or push against what does it mean, like the struggle of belonging, the struggle of being Mm. Arab American, or some hyphenated identity in the US. But I think when it comes to Muslims and Arabs, it was always before approached from the point of view of somebody who's kind of decided they're not that part of that identity and they struggle mm. with it with their parents. You know, you mm. see them like, I'm not really a practicing Muslim or I'm not really a practicing mm. Arab, but I have to deal with it when I go home or deal with like, and it comes, becomes condensed to like drinking and eating pork. Like that's really kind of like the mm. extent of where it goes. And then you have the other side, which is kind of like the full embrace and that there's no challenge to that view is that this is how we are. But it also, like you said, it's that perfection piece. I mean, what's really for me difficult about like when I watch Rami and I feel that what he's trying to portray is so hard is because he's talking about somebody who is a faithful Muslim who's struggling in America, struggling. How do you actually hold on to your faith while living your life? And all of the things that are uncomfortable that comes with that. Correct. It's tough.
1: Yeah, it's tough. That's why he's he's really smart, smart kid.
0: But you when you talk about, you know, you said thing just earlier about you've decided a couple of years before you took on the role that you weren't going to take certain mm-hmm. roles mm-hmm. in the industry. And so I want to ask you about, like, what do you mean by that? And also, you know, you are part of a generation of actors that are coming right before Rami. And I would say that that kind mm-hmm. of pushback against the stereotypes was also part of pushing open the door for mm-hmm. Rami and others to be able to go through.
1: Yeah, I think initially it started about. Maybe nine years ago, I had said that I'm not going to do roles. I'm not going to do terrorist roles. I'm not going to do this and that. And I was holding back for a long time and I was getting so many opportunities. And I'm like, you know, and I finally, there was the last role that I did, I don't know, six years ago, something like that was on a show called 24. And my agent had told me that they want to see you. And I'm like, I don't want to do 24. I don't want to play terrorist. Like, She's like, Leth, you have to do it. Like, and we need to build your resume. have a major recurring on it. It will help. And yada, yada, yada. So I'm like, okay, I went in. I got the part. And I don't know how they found the name of my character. I probably won't say it on air because people can go Google me and go to my MDB and see the name of my character. And they wouldn't change. It was one of the worst experiences because the actors I work with, I'm friends with. Some of them I was friends with before. And they're wonderful people. But the production itself, it was just terrible because I was begging them over and over to change my name. I said, this is the most offensive curse word in the Middle East, in the Arab world. Like, if nobody speaks Arabic, they know this word and they wouldn't change it. And um, I think once I did that, I'm like, that's it, no matter what, even if I'm broke and I have no money, nothing is worth it. I have to, you know, I've paved the way. I tell people that me and few people that I know and many others of my generation, we paved the way for everyone now because people now start in this business and they have many choices, more choices than I did. I mean, i, I give you an example. The first role I did, and I don't regret it. I love it. I love that I did it. I love that I got it. I got my SAG card. I made a lot of money. And I was on TV and everyone was like excited. And But my first job out of school about almost 20 years ago, it was on a show called Third Watch. And I had a recurring on it, two episodes, where I had a lot of action in it. But the one line that I had was literally like, Allahu Akbar. But not Allahu Akbar in, in the way that we really understand. And it's beautiful. You know, it was, it was like, the demonized version of it because I was playing the terrorist. I've never said that word ever again until the first time you hear my voice on Mr. Marvel, there's a scene where we're at the mosque and you hear this undertone saying, Allah, what the, Allah, Allah, Allah. It was so peaceful, so beautiful. And that's basically my journey. I went from that to that. You know, and stereotypes, I mean, what is a stereotype? A stereotype is someone who's written really terribly. It's one-dimensional, at best two-dimensional. Because most of the writing on t v when they have these supporting characters, they're stereotypes because they're written poorly, but like I don't mind playing an uh, abusive Arab husband who abuses his wife and kids. I don't mind it, but who's going to write that? who's going to write that? who's going to make him you know like like a human being who's going to give some humanity to that person even though he's a terrible person, then I'll consider it. but the way somebody just decides to write it and uh, it's going to be terrible that's what makes a stereotype so I think I believe stereotypes are how people are written because anything can be a stereotype anything absolutely anything just like uncle nasim anyone other than rami or someone who understands the depth and the culture and all that stuff wrote that he would have been just another like stereotype but he's not now he's deep he's got the you know he makes you think he makes you ask questions he makes you wonder and that's why people like him because even though they hate him at the same time they hate the things he does but they understand him, they understand his pain, they understand where he's coming from. It's not an excuse, none of it is an excuse, but it's an understanding because sometimes I feel like I would rather understand people why they are a certain way, other than trying to hear their excuses or other people trying to excuse them. And then I can come up to my own conclusions, I can think whatever I want. Yeah, I mean,
0: I think it goes back to that idea of what you're talking about in terms of creating a full character, creating somebody with their humanity is so important, and it's the first thing that's forgotten, especially in our world. You know, in my world where we're working so much with refugees, we try to so many times portray the refugee families and the communities that we serve, we want to portray them all the time in their full dignity, in their full potential, in everything that they can offer the world, everything that they should be able to accomplish because they should not be limited because of the circumstances they've been through. And oftentimes we'll get pushback saying, well, we love what you're doing, but we need to see more suffering. Like People will literally say that to me. Like They'll say the kids that you're supporting don't look like they need it. And that just makes me so out Outraged Because first of all, you can't judge a person like that. And absolutely, we will never show you a picture of a child or a person or a family mm. who look like they need it. We're going mm. to always portray them in the way that they're proud to be shown mm. because that's their right. And it just makes me so angry that like the stereotypes are just not just about media. I think like you're portraying like the background, which is really interesting for you to say, I'll never do this again is so huge because mm-hmm. you're breaking a cycle of mm-hmm. somebody who's also watching this work and a young person who might say that I'm always going to be viewed as this person is showing mm-hmm. me on the screen that they're a terrorist. Mm-hmm. as Other people in school are telling me I'm a terrorist. And I think that this is the same cycle that happens right now within refugee communities Mm-hmm. and
1: yeah, no, I, I totally understand it and also like there's certain people in this world that they wear their pain they wear their suffering because whether it's real or not real because they want to use that to advance, they want to use that to get something but I see a lot of, I don't know, something about Syrians, you know, they just their dignity does not allow them to do that they're not going to come and beg, they're not going to show you like look at me, we need your help I think it's hard enough for them to even accept just the help that they're getting from you and getting from, any. you know what I mean yeah. um, because they're survivors. They work hard. And in Syria, like back in my time, like even before the war, there was always a choice. Like somebody would work like three jobs, but they will never cry out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I remember in the early days, In I mean, when the beginning of the revolution and the war and the displacement, it took a long time. And I think this might even be true today. But I remember very clearly that people would not accept to be called refugees. They would say, Mm Anamani Lajit, Anamani Lajit. It was a, a whole dignity piece of like rejection of the even categorizing mm-hmm. me as a refugee. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I think mixed views on that. Like, it's nothing wrong with being a refugee. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with being a refugee, you know, and not everything is about pride. So what? I'm a refugee. I'm an immigrant. Don't call me an immigrant. I'm mm-hmm. an immigrant. No matter what. A hundred years from now, when people say something about me, like, oh, yeah, he was an immigrant. <laughs> and It doesn't matter. But I understand where it comes from. But I don't think there's anything wrong with being called a refugee. Maybe some people feel emasculated, you know, the men, when you call them a refugee, that they're getting handouts and stuff like that. But it's okay. I think the point is, many of them do. I know some refugees would just turn things around. They've turned their lives around, and now they give back to the community, and they help others. So it's a cycle.
0: Yeah. I, honestly, i thought about this a lot, and I think that it goes back to what you said before, which is about choice. Mm-hmm. I think when people get to the point where they feel they have the choice, they embrace There's absolutely nothing wrong with being a refugee, Mm -hmm. but they embrace it when they feel that it's being imposed on them and it's not Mm -hmm. their choice. They're trying to grasp at anything that they can say, well, Mm -hmm. I'm rejecting this piece because Mm -hmm. all of these other things I can't reject, but I'm rejecting this, which is this name. And I think that's kind of where Mm -hmm. uh, the real work comes in is how do you actually begin to open up the space for people to start having choices again and having the freedom to choose to where Mm -hmm. their lives can be.
1: Yeah. Anything becomes derogatory, no matter what, when it becomes like, somebody is always going to be referring to me as an immigrant, immigrant or refugee, refugee, refugee all the time. I can see why it can be upsetting. I can see why it's, you know, but if we're having a conversation about facts and stuff, it's okay. And I think a lot of it too is, I think it's a stigma that, you know, I haven't been in those shoes, but I've been in the shoes of an outsider, which is very similar and until you start doing something and you start having opportunities and changing things and seeing your kids belonging, then it slowly, I would think it changes. Yeah. You know?
0: So I want to talk about this idea of suffering that you've endured. I read the recent profile of you in The National, and it's such a powerful piece about your life you do talk about these hard moments in your life and in your journey Mm -hmm. and uh, the visionary parts of it too, the parts like the dreamer Mm late parts that pulled you through that I also felt very inspired by. So I wanted to ask you if you could tell us about the King Kong story
1: and going Mm -hmm. back
0: to the Empire State Building.
1: Oh, yeah, King Kong. I watched King Kong when I was, the original King Kong when I was, I think it was the only one out anyway. But in in the mid-70s, I was, I don't know, Seven, maybe. And I watched it and just was just blown away. And, and I was blown away most by when Kong was climbing the building. I'm like, oh, this building has to be fake. It's not real. It's not real. It's not real all the time. All I'm thinking about is this building. I want to go there one day and see if this building is real. And even when we were in Syria, like I didn't think about going back to England. I was, I always dreamt of New York. And then when I came here, the first, there was a picture in that thing. The first thing I did, I went to the top of the Empire State Building, took that picture. And then they wanted a picture of me in front of my, outside of my terrace, which the background is the Empire State Building. So it was kind of a journey. Yeah, I mean, even as a teen, I was still, no, 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 building is not real. It's like Hollywood. They're making that building look like that. Can't make a building at all. But, you know, then I came here as an immigrant. There was a lot of horrors in the beginning. Back in the 90s, again, so I just want to be clear that everything I say is just my I'm not speaking for anyone, I'm only speaking for myself. But from my point of view, that the West, mostly when you say I'm Arab, they're like, oh, you're Palestinian. Because Palestinian-Israeli conflict was always in the news. Everything that happened, every bad thing that happened, every terrorist attack, everything, was always involving a Palestinian or a hijacking. So that's what people knew. They knew uh, Palestinian and Israeli conflict. So I came here and it was difficult in the beginning. It was so difficult because I remember, like, I move forward. Like one, I remember standing in line. Nine Eleven. I volunteered because I wanted to see my friend who lived downtown, and the only way I could get down there was to cross Canal Street. Was to volunteer, and I stood in the volunteer line. We moved down beyond Canal Street, and I, I remember I saw a friend there in line. In line, and she was crying. We were both crying together, and then she started cursing and saying, "F the Palestinians, F the Palestinians." I'm like, "What, what do you mean? You think that?" They didn't, like, well, who else could have done it? It's the Palestinians. And then the next thing you know, she started to chant, the whole line was roaring, like, at the Palestinians, at the Palestinians. And it was so, it was so, it was so painful. Now, the first thing that happened, so his story, my story was in reverse, because when I first came, I was, one of the jobs, I I was driving for a car service company, and I remember they gave me this, I got this call for this doctor, who was a regular, and everyone was laughing when I got the doctor. I'm like, somebody said, well, it's kind of like a rite of passage, you have to get this doctor because nobody liked him. And I remember was driving him and going towards the bridge and he goes, so what's your name? I told him my name. And he said, what kind of name is that? I'm Syrian. It's not a Syrian name, but I'm Syrian. And he goes, well, you know, all Syrians are terrorists, right? And I didn't even know how to respond. But I just stopped the car and I kicked him out. And after that day, I changed my name. You know, I went by Leo. So I became Leo. I lived in Bay Ridge. I started talking like the Italians over there and I became Leo and nobody ever asked me where I was from, ever again. So, 9-11 happened and this incident happened and everyone after 9-11 was running away from their identity, like everyone's Muhammad was changing their name to Harry, literally, like, or Joy, literally, they're choosing all these westernized names. And I did the opposite, uh, you know, the following day I went back to Late. I'm like, you know what? I'm not Leo anymore, I'm Leith. and that was the last time uh, I would ever use the name was said, my name was Leo. And I, you know, I'm Syrian. And uh, so those were the some of the most painful, you know, difficult times are not always painful, but they're just difficult. But those were painful, because it's almost like those are the people that telling you you don't belong here. You don't belong here. Meanwhile, who does belong here? You know what I mean? Yeah, the people who actually belong here will never say that to me. The natives will never ever say that, they'll they'll embrace you, but everyone else who just has a similar story, like mine down the line at some point, they tell you you don't belong. So it's really painful.
0: And it comes in these really painful moments I mean, 9-11 is one of the biggest ones, but you're in so much pain for this country that you've embraced as your own and Mm -hmm. then have to also face everything else that comes with it. And you become so conflicted in that Mm -hmm. because you are grieving, but it's almost you're not allowed even to grieve, too, because you don't belong. Right. Suddenly you don't Mm -hmm. belong. You're not only not allowed to grieve, but you also are meant to feel responsible for something that you're absolutely not responsible for.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I'm not responsible for every horrible act that someone from my background did, whatever. Does that mean, like, I mean, there have been more terrorist attacks by white extremists than anyone else. So does that mean we have to hate white people? No.
0: So. Beyond the King Kong story, I know that you also mm. worked on an idea for a film called King Rookie, mm. which I really love the concept of, and it goes mm. back to even your background of being a bodybuilder or that mm. image of bodybuilders that you held in your room in Syria. Mm. I relate to the idea like you hold on to these kinds of Western. Icons For me, it was a lot of pop music and 80s music. From that article, it seemed that you were relating to movies, actors, and bodybuild- worldwide mm, yeah. bodybuilders. So can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah. Because I think it's really cool and powerful.
1: I remember my parents, they said, I asked my parents one time, I said, can I put up some posters on the wall? They said, no, you can't because the tape will re- remove the paint and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so I remember within 12 hours, because I had so many magazines and posters and pop and everything. Cause I used to get this German magazine called Bravo, which was like the hottest item. And I get all these other sports magazines and I had so many posters. It's ridiculous and I'm not lying to you. First, I drew like some pop art on the wall with Sharpies and stuff like that. And then I spent the whole day putting posters all over the wall, the ceiling. Everything was covered in posters. Like each wall, this one would be Arnold Schwarzenegger and all the action stars. This one would be all the pop stars. The ceiling was movie posters. My window was covered in all these soccer teams. <laughs> my parents came back and they couldn't do anything. They got mad at me, maybe threw a shoe at me or something, but that's it. I mean, there's nothing else. If you remove them now, we're going to mess up the paint. So that became yeah, my room. Too then I had another wall, that same wall that I drew the thing. Anyone who ever came into my room would write something on it. Anyone. I have it on video and everything. My parents, before they sold the house, they took a video of it. So I was always fascinated by pop culture. I was always the movie guy. Like everyone's called me like, wait, what movie should we watch? Blah, blah, blah. If I invite people to come over and watch a movie, they know. We had memberships of five different video stores because some of them had different movies than the others. I would watch every movie. I would, it was endless. And all the time, it was just daydreaming about coming to America. And I had this dream inside to want to be an actor one day But I never spoke out even to my friends, Nassim, anyone. It was just something that you just, it's a ridiculous concept, becoming an actor. So yeah, so King Ruki is about this boy who, you know, coming of age, story growing up in Syria, Start with a little boy watching King Kong, and he's fascinated by Empire State Building. He doesn't believe it's real, and he wants to one day go and see it. And then he's navigating through life in Syria with a a brother and a very strict father. And uh, a lot of things happen on this journey, a lot of sadness, a lot of tragedies, and We had like half of the financing and hired one of the top photographers. He went to Syria and he took all these pictures of every location I wanted and created this book. We did everything. And then, you know, then the war happened. But oddly enough, I felt like somebody told me like, wait, because I say this movie will never get made ever. I'm like, no, it could get made. So I just started rewriting it recently again, just going over it now with like 10 years of experience rewriting it. And it's actually, it's pretty good. And I'm excited about it. One day, maybe I will go make it.
0: I really want to see this movie. I want this movie to exist. Yeah.
1: <laughs> thank you. I think you. it's
0: such a great story and a great concept. And I want to see this.
1: Oh, thank you. Because two of <laughs> my favorite films back in those days were King Kong and Rocky. And in Syria, everyone says, you know, they don't say Rocky. They say Rookie. Oh, you're Rookie. Rookie. So I cause, so I'm thinking, oh, what a good name, King Rookie.
0: I mean, I want this to happen. So oh, I hope it you. does soon.
1: Inshallah, I one mean, day.
0: Inshallah. So, I mean, it really relates to my next question is to talk for, like, I'd love to hear from you about the Syria that you knew and loved and uh, what you would wish people at this point, if people are even thinking about Syria, which is not that much these days, mm. what would you want people to know about the Syria that you knew and loved that people don't know?
1: See, the problem is that whenever someone talks about any country in general, but specifically, let's say, Syria, everything's always attached to politics. It's attached to the regime. They can't think outside the box. They can't think about the people. They can't think, you know, even America. You talk about America like a couple years ago. First thing, you just talk about Trump. You know what I mean? So we're just conditioned that way. And if you want to talk about Syria from perspective of the government, it's a terrible place to live. Who wants to live there, you know? But I made a choice. I was affected by that. And I made a choice to leave. I had the choice and I left because my ambitions would not fit in that, part of the world. But people are incredible. Like You can go, you walk down the street, and you talk to someone, and they'll invite you in for a cup of tea. The way we treat tourists, I remember one them. she became a very close friend of mine. I, this one woman asked me for directions once when I was a kid. And I gave her directions. And I ended up spending a week with her, going all over, discovering the country with her. You know what I mean? And nothing was we just like, it was very platonic or anything like that. There was nothing in it. And that's what people don't get to see. They don't see the kindness, the resilience of the people. They don't get to see that. We're also like a judgmental society here. Like I can have a bad experience with one Syrian and say I don't like Syrians. They like blah blah blah. I had a bad experience with a you know someone from another country. I'm like you know what I don't like English people. There are good people and bad people everywhere. But overall, like, the culture is beautiful, and that's what I miss the most. I miss the culture. I miss the history of the place. I wish I could go and just like walk around the old streets of Damascus, walk down and go to Baghdad and have some ice cream until I'm about to puke, you know, or go to have the shawarma contest from Abu abid with my, you know, we used to go and have shawarma contests all the time, and we, whoever pukes first loses and pays for everything, you know what I mean? <laughs> things like that, like I miss all that stuff. Like So I have all these great memories and I've not forgotten one of them. There are a lot of ugly things too, but they're all separate, yeah. just the people. And the, the funny thing is that the people are still the same in a way. They're just devastated. They're poor and everything like that, but they'll give you that same sense of warmth. And no one will really just cry out or ask for a handout and stuff like that. They just, you know, they won't bring their suffering into the picture. And then meanwhile, they're suffering. I mean, there's a whole generation of kids who don't know what certain foods taste like.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And there's a whole generation of Syrian kids outside of the country who don't have any memories of the country or any memories beyond the war. Right.
1: right. You know, and people don't understand what's happening over there with the economy and and stuff. My dad told me this story from a few years back, a couple of years ago, three years ago, maybe. And this tells you what it's like in Syria right now. He went to the butcher and he saw this, this woman and she had 50 liras, which is now nothing, not even a cent. Maybe it's a scent. I don't know. It's just nothing. This old lady, really old lady, went to the butcher, and she gave him 50 layers, and all she wanted was almost like something bigger than a grain of meat, because she wanted to put it in the food to give flavor, which is cooking, to give flavor. My dad bought a whole leg of lamb because he was just heartbroken. And that's the reality of what people are going through right now.
0: It is terrible. And I think to relating back to what you were talking about in terms of what people want and their determination to live and to become more than their circumstances. I read in that article about an old boss of you who said, this quote really moved me, that he said Mm. about you, he needs Mm. to be more realistic about his expectations. His dreams Mm. are bigger than he is. Mm. And I felt that I related so much to that myself Mm. and my Mm. own ambitions for myself when Mm. I was growing up. And I know that a lot of Syrian kids that I work with also relate to this. And I see it in Mm -hmm. them too. So I wanted to ask you, what would you tell if you met a few Syrian Mm -hmm. teenagers or young adults who are struggling Mm -hmm. and how they can reach their dreams that are Mm feeling that they're so beyond what they could ever reach?
1: We've been living in this box for decades and decades of this is what's expected of us because it's a safety box. If you do this, you do this, you're going to have a good life. It's passed down from my parents. It was passed down to them, and it's a cultural thing. And this is why you don't get a lot of support. Like, in reality, I did not get any support for being an actor. I can tell you that count the people who did. Now, some of them, it's because of love. They don't want you to struggle. Your parents don't want to see you struggle. They know it's hard. You know, they want to see you succeed. And in reality, choosing the arts or acting, it's like gambling, because you don't know what could happen. It's not an easy career. You have to have so much determination and you have to love it so much to want to do it. But then you have other people who are just like, and this is one of the flaws that I find in our culture is a lot of people like to put you down. We don't support each other enough. Like I, right now, like I'm known, like everyone calls me the the God Baba of the community because I support everyone because I want to see that next generation come up. I don't care if they succeed more than I did. It doesn't matter. So. That happened a lot, like I remember you know, I had a few friends that supported me from the beginning, my sisters and my mom and dad did, but like in a way, like they were like, "Oh okay, try it for six months, you know, <laughs> you know? but yeah, but then you have people who are really mean, people who are mean, and that's why people should always be aware of what they say because people don't forget those who bully them, and people don't forget those who supported them. They never do, I right? never do, and I remember when that person said that, I was working, I heard the words come out of his mouth. Ironically, I ran into him once recently because I ran into his, his wife and I told her that. And basically he said, congratulations, what you didn't hear from my mouth was not from me. I'm like, okay, thank you. But I did hear it from his mouth, you know? <laughs> but you know, just all these things, they make you stronger, motivate you. So I tell people there's nothing out of reach. If you feel like it's something that you wanna do, you can do it, you know? You just have to put your whole heart into it. You have to accept that it's gonna be difficult. You have to accept all the hard times and embrace them, and it's part of the process. I think if you pursue anything, if you're passionate about anything, there's gonna be a lot of tears and a lot of suffering before you find that success, and then it's sweet. Then I can have a story like I have right now, and then it means something to someone else. Like people are reading it now, We're getting so many compliments and people like they're inspired. What the most important thing is that people are inspired by this journey. Like, oh my God, I can do this. I can do this. And so I would say just go do that. And sometimes just go after what you want, not what people want for you. Or what's expected of you, even at the cost of relationships and friendships and stuff like that. Because what's the alternative? If I wanted to satisfy my parents. It was successful. Bodybuilder. I had a gym in Syria, and I had so many people wanted to just partner up with me and open gyms, put the money in open gyms. I could have had ten gyms. I was the first one to open a gym like the one I did in Syria. Now there's a gym culture in the country. I was the first person to allow women and men to train together. You know, even though it was frowned upon. But what is the alternative? I would have married someone, met someone, Syria Syria, married her, lived here or there, I don't know. But I probably would have been miserable. I probably would have been miserable. So what is the cost that you do? So follow your dreams. Yeah, I had hard times and everything like that, but I'm very happy now. I'm in a good place.
0: Yeah. I'm in a good place. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that when you hear something like that, because I think all of us have had the experience of overhearing something like whether you read it or somebody tells you or your parents or relatives or somebody gives you this kind of negative, you know, something Mm -hmm. negative that's not useful, like not constructive criticism. And you can take it to heart when it happens when you're a young person or somebody who's not found success yet. It could be very crushing. And you don't realize this until later in life that when that person was speaking, so much of it was about themselves. But in the Mm -hmm. moment, of course, you don't understand that some people just don't want to see you reach for your dreams because they never did. They never had the courage. They Mm -hmm. never had the perseverance. So they say these things, but you don't realize this until much later.
1: I agree with you 100%. So before I go
0: into the rapid fire questions, I wanted to just say that the reason why I think this movie King Rookie needs to exist. Even more than when you came up with the idea or when you started writing it before the war. I think it needs to exist now more than ever because that story is something that actually Syrian people, a whole generation of Syrians mm. don't know. That Syria. And I think it's so important for the story of Syria before the war and how your experience of it mm. was be documented and shared mm. because it's not telling other people about Syria you'll be telling Syrians about Syria mm. before, you know, in the nineties yeah. in that cool era of pop culture where i felt it was so underground to all of the pop culture at that time because you had to like kind of fight to get that
1: yeah no it was it was crazy and then that story takes place i guess it starts in 1980 81 and Mm -hmm. goes through early 90s everything i did was so funny everything i did and this is how my love for syria because anyone else say like why do you like it so much why do you love syria because i love the culture i love the people but just because there are other people who are negative and didn't embrace what I was doing doesn't mean I'm gonna hate a country because of it. But like I did everything. I mean, we during the breakdance era, we were breakdancing in the street and people didn't understand it. People embrace it, then the people who hated it, then people would come and fight with us and people blah blah blah. And then until one day the I think that it was a president's nephew who said he wants to clean the whole streets from this whole thing and they came with all this muhabrat and everything. It was a terrible time, but and then I moved on to the next thing. Whatever that was. I still remember so many things. So many things. Oh my god, I could tell you stories forever.
0: (laughs) I hope we get to hear more of your stories. Yeah, I'll send
1: you I'll send you a draft of it, like in a week or so, and let you read You'll you'll weep a lot.
0: Yes, I definitely want to read it. Um, Before we go move forward, what's next for Leith? What's on the horizon that you can talk Um, about?
1: (laughs) I'm working on developing my own show. And that's in the works and it's an advanced development and waiting to hear about season four, Rami, which I think, you know, it's been published already. He said this in an interview, so I'm not spoiling, I'm not, you know, violating any NDAs, but he's season four might be the last one. He wants to wrap things up. And um, I got a couple things here and there. And I'm doing this film with this young filmmaker. Uh, I like to support young filmmakers of color. I'm doing this other project, this one I can't talk about, but I'll tell you soon, but it's like a this Disney thing, but I did sign a lot of NDAs for it, but I'll let you know about it in time.
0: That's so exciting, and we always want to see all of your work. I'm excited about this new show, of your own show, so look oh, yeah, forward to hearing yeah, more.
1: I'll tell you more about it. I'll let you know about it. I'll tell you. I'll share we'll that with to you too. We'll have have part
0: but... two. We'll have to have part two with you yeah, when this yeah. comes
1: out. Yeah, yeah. So.
0: The last part of this piece is uh, my rapid fire questions that I ask all the guests. The first one is complete this sentence. Home is where?
1: Home is where your happiness outweighs your sadness.
0: Powerful. If you had to leave home and take one belonging with you as a memory, what would it be?
1: A family picture.
0: What's one piece of advice that you would give a young refugee who's trying to find belonging in a new place?
1: Just know that you belong and believe that you belong, and don't let anyone else tell you that you don't.
0: Give us a list of three unexpected places people must visit in your hometown.
1: I would say top of the Empire State Building. and you're going to feel like you're on top of the world. And I would say in Damascus, Hammam Nur ad-Din Shaheed. It's a bath in old Damascus. It's like beautiful. And uh, Su'ul Hamidiyah, the Su'ul Hamadiya, the Hamadiya market.
0: You really did stay true to the map, being right in between. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> what dish tastes like home to you?
1: Anything with eggplant.
0: Is eggplant big in Damascus? Because I feel like it's more like hummus. Do you have a specific eggplant no. dish that's your
1: favorite? Yeah, I'm
0: And that's kind of like an eggplant. Um...
1: It's eggplant and, and meat and tomatoes and stuff, and then the oven. I don't know. How it's, made, it's like an I eggplant
0: stew. I think we have a recipe. My sister-in-law has a recipe for this. We can link to that so people. know. Oh, okay, good.
1: good, good, yes. good, good.
0: So what's a book or books that you love and have recommended to your friends the most? Something that you'd like for people to know about or read?
1: Mm, I like The Alchemist.
0: Yeah, that's a really beautiful book.
1: Yeah, it's an easy read and it teaches you a lot. Absolutely. It you about patience and about everything. And yeah.
0: Thank you so much, Leith. I really appreciate your time here today. Oh, thank us. you so
1: much for having me.
0: And everybody, we're going to be sharing all of these things with the links in the show notes to Leith's work, the things that we talked about, as well as his social media. You have to follow him on Instagram, watch Rami, watch Miss Marvel and definitely support the work that he's in. It's really great and funny and inspirational.
1: Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you very much for having me.
0: Didn't you just love listening to Leith's stories and journey? He highlighted so well the importance of finding ourselves in the characters we see on TV. This reminded me of my conversation with Leanne, a student at Kerem House, Istanbul. Leanne, like Leith, moved around a lot in her life. Born in Saudi Arabia, then going to Syria before making the journey to Turkey. Leanne finds home in the community around her, which is why she loves meeting new people and finding things in common with them, no matter where they're from. Here's Leanne. Hi Layan, welcome to Belongings the Podcast. It's very great to have you with us here today at Ketem House Istanbul.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad I'm here.
0: I'm really excited to speak with you today about your journey, about how you think about home and belonging, and to hear all about what you've been up to here at Ketem House.
2: To be honest, it's a great experience. When I first entered Karam House, I'd not really been involved in such activities that, like that built my, for example, critical thinking skills or like certain crafts. So I was really excited when I first joined.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. So we're gonna start straight from the beginning. If you could tell us your name and uh, where
2: you're from in Syria. My name is Deanne Anis. I'm from Damascus, and I actually was not born there, but yeah. Where were you born? In Medina and Saudi Saudi Arabia. Arabia. So, do you consider yourself to be Syrian? I do, yeah. Okay.
0: How long have you been living in Turkey?
2: Uh, I came here first in September 2015, I believe. So, can you tell us about your journey from Saudi Arabia to Turkey? How Um, did that happen? I was born in Saudi Arabia because my parents said lived there for like about 30 years. My dad's work was there. So I was born there and I obviously don't remember the first couple of years, but I remember us moving back to Syria when I was around uh, 3 years old. So from when I was 3 until I was 6, so from KG1 until grade 1, I lived in Syria in Damascus and then after that I think when I was grade one, it was around 2011. So it was when the war was really starting to limit like people's lives in Syria. So we moved back to Saudi Arabia and I studied there for three years. So from grade two to grade four. And then in uh, grade five, I moved here in 2015. Yeah. So I know that before we started the podcast recording,
0: we talked a little bit about the map of home exercise and you created your map and it looks very different than other maps we've seen. So I'm really excited for you to tell us a story about what you drew, where this is and what's going on in your drawings.
2: Okay. This is my neighborhood in Syria. I'm trying to draw as much as possible from memory because last time I've been there, I was seven years old. So this is my neighborhood. The only building I drew the windows on is our building. I remember the house very clearly from the inside, but I just didn't include it here. The reason I drew the neighborhood is because I always used to go down and play with the neighborhood kids. And we used to always go down to the kane the of like the neighborhood. And we used to buy a lot of snacks together. And I remember this one old man that used to pass every couple of days. He had a wagon and he would sell basically corn cobs. And he would also have uh, what we call turmus. Whenever we see him, we used to call him from the window of our house and be like, hey, like, could you wait for like, Two minutes, we're gonna come down and buy. And we used to go and buy a lot from him. And I remember my mom sending me across the street to go buy some pastries for her. Or like we had spinach pastries and all these. Uh, I still remember buying these exactly. Yeah, that's pretty much it.
0: So I remember going to the Dekane too, and it was really feeling like it's an adventure when you know your the parents or the grandparents trust you enough to go out on the street alone, especially as a girl. What kind of snacks would you buy?
2: There was this blue bag of chips or like popcorn. I remembered the taste very distinctly. and when I came here to Turkey, I was passing by and then I saw a Syrian decanit. and the moment I spotted the chips, I was like, that's the one. Yeah, I knew exactly what it was, and then when I tasted it, it was actually like the exact same. So that's like,, crazy. that's like the one snack that I still remember from then when I used to go to the decanit.
0: Yeah, for the listeners, Dekane means little shop, so they're kind of like the bodega, and uh, they're always, you know, in the neighborhoods in Syria, they're very much on every street where you would go to get snacks or little things you need in between grocery store visits, and actually a long time ago, there weren't even grocery stores in Syria, so really people would buy from these kinds of little shops and uh, that's great with the corn uh, on the cob story as well. Yeah. Yeah. But what was the thing you
2: said they, what did they have? I'm not sure what it's called in English, though I want know in Arabic. It's called turmos. Turmos. It's, it's very similar to chickpeas yeah. and it's usually eaten with like a mix of salt and uh, cumin. Wow. You eat it with it. So, yeah. Yeah. Sounds really good. It, it was very yeah. good. <laughs> so, how long has it
0: been since you've been in that house?
2: My aunt still lives there, but last time I visited, I don't quite remember, but probably 2013, 14, something like that. So you came to Turkey. Did you come straight to Istanbul? Yeah, we first came before 2015 or like in early 2015, just for a vacation to check the place out. And then we liked it and we decided to like uh, settle here.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about navigating Istanbul, navigating Turkey as a young Syrian teenager going
2: to a new school. What kind of challenges did you face? And how was that experience for you? I think the main challenge for me was the language barrier when I first came, because living in a whole new country with a whole new language, it's very challenging. You're trying to survive. Like You want to go out and buy something, you'll have to speak the language. You want to interact with the people outside. So that was the biggest challenge, I think. Thankfully, I don't think I experienced a lot of racism or discrimination throughout the years. I've been here for like six years. This is my seventh year. So I don't think I've experienced it as much as others tell me they have. And mainly because I don't study in a Turkish school. My friends do. So the stories I hear from my friends are very different. Like their experiences are very different from what I went through. So what kind of school do you go to? An international school. So is it diverse in having people from everywhere? Who goes to those kinds of schools? I mean, it is diverse, but like the people that mainly go there are Arabs. So it's good. Like you don't feel like you're the outcast of the group Mm -hmm. because everybody is Arab. We all speak the same language. So it makes me belong, basically. Well, that's exactly what the topic (laughs) of
0: this podcast is. So my question was going to be about uh, how do you define belonging?
2: mainly by the people especially here in turkey because so many syrian people have come here they've created a community so you never really feel alone when you're out here like there are certain neighborhoods you can go to and you can experience Syria, but in Istanbul, basically. Yeah. Fatah is one of the main uh, neighborhoods that has that. Like you go there and you see so many Syrian people, so many Syrian, the Canada, like stuff okay. like that. So I don't feel like I'm in a foreign country when I go there. So what makes me belong is mostly the people and the community that I'm living in. That's wonderful. Belonging as community. And what is home to you? I think a home it doesn't have a definite meaning. It's where the community you're comfortable with is. When I was in Syria, I had my relatives around me and they was basically my, like, my homeland. So I felt at home. But then when I moved to Saudi Arabia, there were also a lot of relatives around me and we would always visit them and we would always celebrate Eid together. So I did not feel like I was in a foreign country either. And even when I came here, I was like surrounded by a very huge Syrian community. And even in my school, there was a huge like diverse Arab community. So I like wherever I go, I don't feel like I'm going further away from home because mm-hmm. home is the community that I'm in. And so whenever there's an Arab community around me that shares my culture and shares my language, I feel like that's what I would call home. That's beautiful. My next question is about this place that we're in right here, Kedham House, Istanbul. Can
0: you tell us a little bit about your experience here and what kind of senses of belonging and experiences that you've had at Kedham House?
2: I think it reminds me of school because I mostly come and I see like people from everywhere. Like I met people from Yemen, I met people from Morocco, people from Syria. So I feel like it's very, very similar to my school. It's very diverse and uh, it allows me to express myself freely. So that's really nice. And what about the projects that you've done? How many studios have you done here? I'm not sure, but, but they are definitely more than six. Wow, I think
0: yeah. Can you tell us about a special project to you or your favorite project that you've done at Karim House?
2: All my projects so far were online, so mm. I like I had the luxury of working on them at home, like uh, taking my time on them and actually putting some good effort in them. And I think my favorite project was for a studio. I think it's called Cinematic Characters. I'm not very sure. But what the goal of the studio was for us to pick a character from history, any character we wanted, an author, a poet, a scientist, and then record a video of how they would react if they would see the world and how it is now. And I chose Edgar Allan Poe. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I had to record a video of how he he would react to seeing his stories uh, become very famous. It was an amazing experience. It was uh, in the middle of quarantine. So I was very bored and everybody was stuck at home. So it was like a time where my mind was at peace and creativity was flowing. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a great experience with cinematic makeup as well. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of fun with them. And so why did you choose Edgar Allan Poe? Mostly because we were taking about him in school. But because we were taking about him, I really liked his stories and I... Like I got to really analyze his stories and go through his poems and like understand him as a person. So I really liked him a lot. I really liked his style. That's really amazing.
0: Do you remember what the project, like the video was about?
2: Yeah, he was sitting on his desk or something like that. And then he uh, sleeps or nods off and then he finds himself in a library and he uh, takes a glance at the shelves and he finds his books or like Mm -hmm. his poem collection. Mm -hmm. And then he would start asking around like, what year is it? And stuff like that.
0: That's really cool. I love the stories about the projects and your creativity. And I wanted to go to a few questions that ask almost all of our guests. And so the first question you actually kind of answered, but I'm going to ask you to repeat it. And it's to finish the sentence, home is where...
2: Home is everywhere. <laughs> home is technically everywhere. It like follows the community. So like I would not be able to pick one country out of the three that I've been to to call home. Wonderful. And if you had to leave home and you had to
0: take with you only one item for memory's sake, what would you take?
2: I think it would still be my phone because it carries a lot of memories. The phone itself is not old, but like what's inside of it, like there are so many pictures, Mm -hmm. so many memories I have still in my phone. So I I think it would definitely be my my phone. Right now, I don't have this thing, but if I did, I would take it. And it's basically a photo album of um, our family in Syria. We would take photos all the time and we'd put it in this big, huge album. And I think if I had that here, it would definitely be what I would take. Yeah, those are really beautiful albums. And then I wanted to ask
0: you about... I think you're definitely a reader uh, with all of your background, and so is there a book that you really love, or you've recommended a lot to your friends that you recommend people look at or read?
2: I haven't been reading lately because I just went through my exams, but I read this fantasy book called "Curse So Dark and Lonely," I think, and it was pretty nice. I feel. Do you read? But a lot? I generally don't like recommending books to people. Yeah. When I read something, I just keep it to myself.
0: <laughs> That's one kind of recommendation. <laughs> I have a question to you. As you know, there's a lot of people and young people around the world who had to leave their homes for different reasons. And so if you had some words of advice to somebody your age, somewhere around the world who had had to leave their home and are looking to
2: try to find belonging and that sense of home in a new place, what would you tell them? I think they should try to not reject the change because most people, when they move to a new place, they're trying to distance themselves from the place around them. I think you should try to slowly accept it, slowly try to adapt to it and try to get the people around you. Because I think if I did not know a lot of Arab people here or like if I didn't have a Syrian or an Arabic community to belong to, I don't think I like living here would be that easy. So definitely, I think finding a community you belong to and trying to adapt to this change is definitely the good direction or the good way to take. Definitely. That's really
0: important advice. Do you have a favorite food that reminds you of home?
2: I think shakriya. Shakriya. Explain <laughs> to us what shakriya is. <laughs> it's uh, cooked milk with meat and it's usually eaten with rice or bread.
0: Shakriya is so good. Yes. <laughs> Does your mom make it?
2: Yeah, a lot. Like, is that her specialty? I mean, not really, but I usually always request it from her. Yeah,
0: it's comforting.
2: Yeah. That's wonderful. So I think that that's all I have.
0: And um, if Is there anything else you'd like to share?
2: I just want to say thank you so much. Like, uh, being at Kana House has been such a great experience for me. I got to meet new people. I got to talk to uh, so many new instructors, and they helped me a lot. I learned so many new skills through, like, the... Genius camp, uh, 3D printers and all that. I got to get into so many new topics that I don't think I would have gotten into if not for Karam House. So that's all.
0: That's exactly what it exists for. What are your plans for the future? What are you dreaming of doing later in life?
2: I'm very indecisive at the moment, Uh but I'm leaning towards becoming a psychologist or like having my own psychology office, if that makes sense.
0: Are you planning to study in university here in Turkey? Probably, yeah. Wonderful. I wish you the best of luck. And that's a thank great field. So and if you change your mind, that's good too. And I hope you really enjoy the in-person studios. They definitely feel a lot different. And uh, I'm looking forward, maybe like a year from now, we can have a different conversation after you have had a few in-person studios. So thank you so much for your time, Leanne. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Belongings. I'm your host, Lina Sergi-Attar. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it to be meaningful. This episode of Belongings was produced by Rama Majzoub and Noor al Episode research by Ghania Chowdhury. Podcast artwork by Suleyman Faour. Music is Inni Mneeh by Mashrou' Leila. Please follow, rate, and review Belongings wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow Belongings on Instagram at Belongings Podcast. If you would like to support building a sense of belonging, community, and well-being for refugee youth, please visit KaramFoundation.org. Thank you, everyone. See you next time.